Everyone has a story, a story worth being told. This is Dara Jones, and welcome to Richland Treasures, where we learn the hidden stories, the hidden treasures of our faculty, staff, and students. Today, Dr. Clive Siegel continues his conversation about his upcoming new book, Ciboleros, and we'll learn about the Comancheros and a case of mistaken identity. The term comes from people who are associated with Comanches. They're, they're, they're ah. people of the Comanche, or, or you know, very loosely translated. Comancheros were Indian traders. They were Hispanics who traded with Indians. That was their business. Now, with Indians, or was there slavery involved in that? Well, not necessarily. Okay. Comancheros were in it for the buck. All right. Uh, and so they were traders, intrepid traders, because you got to realize that in order to trade with Indians, you got to go out among Indians, which had its perils. Uh, the, the, the relationship uh, with New Mexico and the Indian tribes there uh, were kind of checkered. And uh, in some cases, uh, the New Mexicans were on, on better terms with Indians than, say, their Anglo buddies on the other side of the fence. Uh, and in other cases, they were just in the same boat. Uh, you know, you found out on the prairie, you got scalped. Uh, that sort so of thing. So did that ever happen to any of these uh, civil oh, yeah. areas? Yeah, but, but less so, certainly, than the Hyde men, because, because in, in the 1780s, uh, the uh, the government of, of New Mexico uh, and the Comanches uh, made a peace treaty among and it it was called it was called the Comanche peace and uh, it's a, it's a very interesting story and for the most part that put an end uh, to the enmity between the the Comanche tribes uh, and the and the Hispanics of New Mexico. Interestingly, it did not involve Hispanics of Texas. And so the Comanches murdered Hispanics in Texas at a great rate, but not of New Mexico, uh, if they could figure it out. Uh, and so, so th in that particular case, uh, you know, this relationship allowed, allowed the Comancheros out and about. Uh, because because once the Comanche peace, let's let's face it, before the Comanche peace, Indians wanted to trade as well. It's not like they didn't want to. It's just that there was a much there was there were no ground rules to things. Uh, after the Comanche peace, uh, you know, if you could if you were a New Mexican trader, uh, you could pretty much pass through in and among Comanche groups, and and you wouldn't be molested. Uh, and and so this the Comancheros went out uh, and they traded, uh, but 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 what it amounted to is Comanches themselves, since the Comancheros uh, were the their only uh, allies, so to speak, and it was a pretty r risky one at best. Mm -hmm. I mean, understand? I mean, this was a it was a hard business out on the frontier. What eventually began to happen is that Comancheros, uh, in order to get the Comanche business or fill in the blank, the Kiowa business or whoever was out there, uh, began to resort uh, to dubious trading practices like bringing whiskey out oh. uh, or guns or things like that. 
uh, and and then as time went on, particularly after the U.S. period begins and we start getting, you know, the, the territorial period and whatnot, uh, the uh, Comancheros were not above trading st for stolen horses uh, with, ca with contraband stuff. And so there was a very... Uh, it was a very risky business. There were lots of Comancheros out there, and uh, particularly as Texas begins to fill up with, with Anglo settlers and whatnot, uh, Comancheros became uh, third-party fencemen for uh, stolen goods. Uh, and so it was not unusual for Texas cattle to be rustled, uh, sold to Comancheros. The, the Comanches, they had no use for these cattle because there's no honor in hunting them or killing them, but there is a great honor in trading them for something else. <laughs> so they would steal them. Uh, then the Comancheros, who had set up their, uh, their, their operations out in the no-man's land, so to speak, out in, you know, the canyons of West Texas and the rest of that, would then take the stolen goods uh, and then sell them in New Mexico. Uh, and uh, and so, so Comancheros, soon enough, began to develop by the, by the 1800s, certainly, uh, a, 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 a certain criminality attached to them, which was not always true. That's another thing. It was not always true. Many Comancheros were just part-time traders who were also Ciboleros. While you're out there, you might as well bring a few things with you in case you run into some Indians that you want to trade some stuff. Uh, you could trade it. You might get yourself another horse or something like that. I mean, you just took stuff out there on the offhand chance you could trade it. But soon enough, uh, the whole thing became a very gray area. So when I, And Comancheros typically, on both the Hispanic side of things and on the on the Anglo side, they were demonized. There was no doubt about it. They were all crooks, painted with the same, pretty much the same paintbrush. On the Hispanic side of it, uh, there was it was more nuanced. But still, Comancheros uh, were definitely in that gray area of being, you know, I mean flim-flam men to us at, at, at the at the best and then criminals at the worst mm. uh, and and so so when I would say do you have any Ciboleros in your family ah. sometimes I, I would you know be met with oh no 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 <laughs> and 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 I first I thought what's the deal and finally uh, you know Someone would say something, they'd make an offhand comment like, uh, you know, my people never, you know, traded with the Indians. And I thought, wait a minute here, uh, maybe that's the issue. They're thinking that these guys are common cheros. Because believe it or not, a lot of, even, even in New Mexico, if I were to say, oh, those Ciboleros, many New Mexicans uh, of Hispanic descent, are like, what? You know, I mean, it, because it's so just enough time has passed that people just enough don't time know. has passed, and and moreover, they haven't asked the questions of their family. See, that's another thing where they're just like everybody else. Oh, that old stuff. You know, who cares? Uh, and so, b bingo. I mean, if if your relatives had been Cibaleros, you'd know what a Cibalero was. Uh, but 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 if you never ask your relatives if they were anything, and they never you know that, what what did you do in the olden days kind of thing, and some and and the word Cibolero never comes up, they don't know what it is either. Uh, and unless you read something about it, 
and luckily the kind of the in terms of 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 how we how we've we've started to look at well started i mean we've looked for decades now it's a chicano history and and you know hispanic history uh there's more questions about the past tell me about the past as opposed to you know not mm-hmm. uh and so people are are re they're re-asking the questions so there's more people that know about Cibaleros than maybe before, oddly enough, but it still isn't everybody. And that was a problem for me, was getting over this Comanchero business. There's no telling how many people that I let pass because they just flat denied that there were no Cibaleros in their family because I didn't frame the question right. Uh, and well, you so, learn, though. Yeah, you learn, and so so now what I do if I if I ever have any you know anything to where I'm asking this, and I see even the least bit of of you know of kind of like them holding back a little bit or seeing the wheels turn or even not, I just assume anymore. Uh, I, I'll go, uh, you know, any Cibaleros in your family? No, not common chairs now, but Cibaleros. I mean, I have to, I literally do that uh, just in case. Uh, and, uh, and, but I was surprised. It's, it's one of these things you, you learn as you go along. Uh, well, let's talk about the post-Buffalo world and, and what happened when the buffalo herds had declined and this was no longer a viable enterprise, what happened to these folks? They had to start barbecuing their bankroll is what they had to do is, is, is kind of the analogy I do. There were, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sheep in New Mexico. Sheep were one thing that, that, that prospered in New Mexico like cattle didn't always. Uh, you know, cattle required a different, a, a lot more pasture, uh, and so parts of New Mexico uh, were never good for cattle. Lots uh, of mountains is that part of the issue? Mountains and 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 a lot of gray, There's a lot of dry areas in New in New Mexico, uh, and so cattle could be raised along water courses and the rest of that. And so cowmen, uh, you know, you know, it's not that there weren't, but but Hispanics early on brought sheep to New Mexico, and, and sheep uh, tended to be a lot more durable. Uh, but the interesting thing is that, uh, that there was more money in wool mm-hmm. than there was in meat. And so over time, uh, the, the rich New Mexicans, uh, who would be the same equivalent as ranchers, like cow- cattle ranchers on, on the Anglo side of things, uh, became immensely rich. Families made huge amounts of money and, and had thousands of head of sheep, which were herded by usually someone else, like as in guys b- down the pecking order. Uh, and so these sheep, uh, instead of being slaughtered regularly for meat, uh, you know, were, there was more money in keeping them alive uh, and getting wool off of them. And so that's where the buffalo came in, because they, of course, had no market value aside from eating them uh, and and maybe selling their hides, but that really was never the market. And so you could substitute buffalo meat for sheep meat. 
not, not that they not that Hispanics never ate sheep, but I actually went in and I tried to figure this out, uh, and I actually came up with a figure that based on the consumption of you know the and another thing is New Mexican sheep were churro sheep they were small, uh, so and not as they, much meat, not as much meat but very tender, uh, and 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 their wool was was coarse. Uh, not like merino sheep that come in later, but the fact is that they, you know, that that they were they were they were a commodity best left on four foot, four feet, and and sheared. Uh, and so for for the average New Mexican uh, of and and the average New Mexican, of course, was a fairly poor farmer. Uh, they it just didn't make sense uh, to kill these sheep off and eat them uh, when in fact. Uh, you could either combine your sheep with others and, and you know, and, and, and then build your flocks, uh, or you work for somebody else who didn't allow you to do it in the first place. You eat that sheep, it's trouble, so mm. to speak. And so buffalo meat was perfect substitute. You could go out there and get tons of it. All you had to do was put the sweat equity in on it, uh, and then bingo, there you well, When the meat disappears, as it does, in com- it, and it leaves the diet of the average you know, New Mexican poor farmer, they got to come up with something else, fill in the blank, chicken, something. What I didn't do, and what I, I mean, this book could be the size of the Encyclopedia Britannica when it was over if I just kept going, uh, but what I had to do was, was to, to, when the buffalo business was over, <laughs> the book ends. It's over. Uh, and, and what happens after that is in somebody else's study. But what eventually did happen, of course, is they, they're going to have to come up with some other thing, pigs, uh, you know, sheep, etc. In other words, the shift has to be, once the buffalo are gone, to domestic animals as a protein source. And so, and I don't know what that is, quite honestly. Probably, I mean, chickens were easy to raise, uh, and turkeys. And quick. Uh, and, and, and quick. So, yeah, arguably, that's the average the average working man's diet uh, may have may have shifted that direction, but honestly, I don't know. And eventually, beef became cheap enough. But but we're talking, you know, this is eighteen. The the demise of the herds uh, that would be accessible to the average, uh, either either Hispanic New Mexican or Anglo American, was about over by 1878. Uh, I mean, there was hardly a buffalo to shoot on the southern plains. There were a few pockets of them, but that was it. They were gone. Very sad. Almost, and, and another thing is, it was almost overnight. I mean... Well, you know, I remember seeing a documentary where they shot buffaloes all day, and there was this huge pile. I forget who did that or what state. Oh, and those pictures, they're probably at Dodge City of the piles of skulls and the rest of that what alongside the road. a pile of dead... Yeah, Buffalo. The, <coughs> the best, and I mean the best shooters, uh, the uh, Orlando Bond and people like that, uh, and under optimal circumstances, uh, with a uh, the the term was taking the term was taking a stand when you when a, when an Anglo hunter goes out with a rifle in the heyday of the of the hide business. Uh, these guys were these guys were good. 
the hunter had a team of skinners along with him. There's no, there's no such thing as single hunting in the, in the market business. It just doesn't work. Even two guys, not enough people. Uh, if you're really in the business, you have a team of skinners behind you because it's the hide you're taking off of it and the tongue uh, as the only piece of meat. Uh, and those skinners, might you might have five of them, one hunter. The hunter's job in the morning is to go out and find something to shoot. So he gets on his horse and he rides around uh, until he finds a herd. Then he, you know, and that's what he decides to do. Then he doesn't go back and tell the, the you know, the, high, the, the skinners, you know, I found a herd. He just sets up shop. He sets himself up in the best possible position to accurately shoot at the buffalo he's going to harvest. And he proceeds to start. Uh, and shooting them required a high-powered rifle. By high-powered, I'm talking seriously high-powered, and in those days, the, the ultimate gun of this era was a brand called Sh the Sharps Rifle Company. Uh, and uh, these guns were specially made for this kind of thing. They were heavy, usually 12 pounds, uh, because the recoil was brutal on these things, and you needed that weight to absorb the, you know, the, the punch. The shells themselves, these were all black powder shells during this era, were usually between 40 and 50 caliber. So, I mean, they were... The, the Sore the, arm. Yeah, so when, when you look at a 50... And, and, you know, without getting into the minutia of this, uh, usually the shells were, uh, you know, the calibers were described by the, the, the diameter of the, of the bullet and the amount of powder behind it. So the 50-90 sharps was 50 caliber behind 90 pounds or 90 grains of black powder. Uh, the cartridge itself is about, I'm thinking, because probably about two and a half to three inches long, uh, and and the slug is just colossal. Uh, and these were center fire center fire cartridges. When you fired these things. Uh, the the fifty ninety or the forty nine forty five ninety sharps or whatever had the capability to kill something at a thousand yards in That's the hands a of a good shooter. Yep. Uh, so, but but you didn't want to do that. You wanted to kill them closer in than that. But you wanted to kill them so that you wouldn't spook them when you started <laughs> shooting at them. And so the trick was they would look over the herd. Uh, and even a large herd of a couple thousand buffalo were, were if, to a trained eye, uh, revolved around pods of, of largely, you know, some form of familial structure, usually led by, a, by an old cow. But they would, be, they would be within the general herd. That was your first victim. Uh, so the guy would would look at the herd, and he'd he'd see if one or the other of of these animals in this in this group uh, tended to sort of where it went, the other ones went, uh, even in a bigger herd. And so that was the one you killed first. You had to kill it with the first shot, uh, and typically you had to lung shoot them. If you heart shot them, they'd run. Once one ran, they all ran. So what you wanted to do was drill them through the lungs and anchor them. Typically, the buffalo would stay on its feet for maybe 30 seconds and then just keel over. Uh, the other buffalo now are like, geez, I wonder what happened to old Bob there. He was standing up a minute ago. What the heck? Uh, so they but, would stay? But there'd be no panic. 
Uh, and so then the hunter would then, and he'd have to do this almost in a split second. He'd maybe have a minute or two, and he'd, he'd look for any signs of anybody else going to up and run and drill that one next. And he would continue to do it until finally the group would break uh, and run. And then the, then the hunt was over. Uh, you, you were done for the day. And, and that was called getting a stand and then breaking a stand. Uh, and if you were good, uh, you know, the average guy, probably about 30 buffalo would be on the ground, which is about all a five-man squad could, could skin a in, lot of in a day. The best could get over 100 and, you know, stand. there's the whole aspect of that being kind of sad, you know, when knowing what we know today. It is sad. I mean, to a certain, you know, it is. But it's a business for these guys. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, the, the, the sentiment is, is not there. You've got, a, you've got guys to pay. You've got, you know, you're making a business at this or you're not. Uh, and, but what you had to do is everything had to be skinned by sundown because otherwise... Wolves would worry the carcasses overnight, and the hides would be useless by morning. So you may, and, and the, 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 some of the stories of the legendary shooters, uh, you know, at, yeah, over a hundred, uh, would be typically uh, in in one case, uh, this guy fired. He had two guns, so he fires and fire. When one gets so hot that the barrel's just too hot to hold now. Uh, he simply sh switches off uh, and and continues to fire. They were and and by by the end of it, they had a pile uh, where the buffalo were so close together that when the skinners arrive, they have to start at the outside of the pile because they the the buffalo can't be turned to skin because they're wedged against each other they just dropped in their tracks this guy had killed them one after another so like a like a loaf of bread where you take the the heel and you kind of you know you don't get in the middle of the bread you have to kind of take the like slices dominoes. yeah uh, they had to take the buffalo on the outside, skin and roll them to the outside so they could open up space for the next one inside so that they could take that one and, and, and roll that in the space. And they had to work in towards the center of it uh, to get all the hides off. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was close to an acre uh, of, of carcasses killed so close together uh, that they were... Uh, that you couldn't process them without trying to move it, and, and we're talking moving 800. It's 800 pounds on the hoof. It might as well be 8,000 pounds. Yeah, I was laying say, on the ground dead. Uh, need a horse to drag that out. Yeah, that's right. And and so maybe there two it horses. Uh, well, uh, before we end today, talk a little bit about uh, what you foresee as far as your book coming out. And I know there's been some delays. Yeah, there's been talk, some delays talk because about that. the the book is in with other books, and um, and so it's 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 in and out of the queue all the time, uh, and that's the way it works with uh, with publishers, with particularly uh, smaller publishers, uh, you know, who have just. X number of resources, and to a certain extent, that's good because it allows me, I mean, not to change things around. Because believe me, if you're going to send it to a publisher, it better be pretty well done, because uh, they're not going to wait for you to keep, you know, chugging away at it. Uh, but it's a, it's allowed me to, you know, to to, to 
to to proof it to to you know to make sure everything's is good on my end and all of that so so that's been okay plus of course i have a day job which <laughs> which is not writing books about buffalo uh and uh, so so it should be out uh this this winter uh, i mean everything is the the cover is the cover's done the contents are you know are in the process there's proof there's proofs and press checks yet that kind of thing uh but but the book is written and and mm-hmm. it's done uh and and w- one thing about it is uh one of the things that i specifically wanted to do is uh as far as the look and feel of the book i wanted there to be a lot of of artwork in it uh and and a lot of material culture i'm big on that i mean i teach and use material culture in the classroom a lot. Historical items. Look, this is what this looked like. Uh, here, touch it. That kind of thing. We can't do that with a book, but you can certainly illustrate it and and you know have have plenty of pictures mm-hmm. in there because we're not talking about something that most people go, oh yeah, and no problem. I know what a buffalo skinning knife looks like or something like that. So you got uh, a picture of that in there? You better believe it. All I've right. got originals and uh, you know having a museum publish things is a good thing because they have some things of their own. But I also uh, I also wanted I wanted original art in the book. Uh, and so, luckily, uh, I found I found some artists who who were as passionate about history uh, as I was. Uh, Ron Kill being one of them. Bill Barron. Uh, these are kind of guys that who who the American West is their specialty, and particularly Ron Kill. Uh, I mean, he was he was just raring to go when I talked about it. Uh, and uh, and so he created for me, as did Bill Barron, uh, you know, artwork that I could, you know, in in Bill's case, he already he already had had a piece of art uh, that he was generous enough to let me use. Uh, in the case of Ron, he just <laughs> he just started painting, uh, and so awesome. uh, the book is is full of original art uh, because let's face it, they there are no there are very few photographs. Uh, of Ciboleros. Arguably, there are just a handful, and and luckily, I have some of them. I actually have pictures of real guys. All right. Uh, it, but thanks to can't wait uh, to see that. Yeah, and, and thanks to the the people who were generous enough to loan me those. They're pictures of people in their family, uh, but but the rest of it, getting you know, having pictures of of what it's like to actually lance them, riding alongside of them with the right stuff. That's that has to be art, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, Ron uh, was raring to go, uh, and so we we have a lot of that in it, uh, and uh, the the cover per, is a is a painting of Siebel arrows, and so on. So I wanted to have plenty of that in the book, uh, and uh, you know all of that just takes time. Now, when it comes out, will it be? Um come out on Amazon, or, or will it be something that's more specialty and that you have to order from the museum? <clears throat> It'll probably be ordered from the museum. Uh, well, I hope you'll let us know so we can oh, sure. get the word I will. out for and you. There'll be ways where, we, where we'll distribute the stuff to where it, it won't be, you know, with a little luck, uh, you know, quite as exclusive. Uh, 
but but that remains to be seen, and that's actually the museum's business, not mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the Museum of the Fur Trade in Shadron, Nebraska, which I might add they have they have a press called the Fur Press. Uh, well, that which, sounds like a, a fun little vacation you know, stop yeah, by. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, but but nevertheless, they they will market it, and it'll be you know shipped and whatnot i mean it'll it'll be around and it'll be available to actually order awesome uh and so on so um and they also have a a press where they have a lot of other books not like c valero books because mine is the greatest latest and whatever if i do say so myself but they've got other things too well i'm going to close this for today thanks dr siegel for telling us really like interesting highlights from your book and uh, i look forward to look reading it later so thank you very much and and i appreciate uh, being here thank you to dr clive siegel for taking us on a tour of his upcoming new book cibolero's i'm your host dara jones <laughs>